When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I teach linguistics at Columbia University. And today's show is going to be about something you probably didn't expect me to touch on in this show, the Bible. Yep, it's going to be all about the good book today. And of course, we have to have some music to bring that on. And no, I'm not going to use the soundtrack from the Ten Commandments because that would be too easy. And it's not what's in my head. If I think of the Bible and I put music on it, frankly, quite viscerally, it is this. Just listen to this and tell me that this doesn't get you thinking about roughly Exodus here. That is, for those of you who are wondering, that's William Walton. He's British, and he isn't played enough. That's the Crown Imperial Coronation March. It stirs me to my guts, and it also sounds like the Bible. Anyway, the issue that we're going to deal with today is the the King James Version of the Bible, the KJV, what many of you might think of as the quote-unquote real one. And actually, many of you might find this episode slant more familiar if you've been listening to me long enough to remember that show about Shakespeare two summers ago. Remember way back when people were wondering, who is this guy they have doing Lexicon Valley now who sits there rambling on about Lucy and his car and show tunes? Remember that? Well, back then there was that Shakespeare show where the idea was, is it possibly time to, shall we say, adjust the language of Shakespeare because of how difficult it can be to understand? especially live. Anyway, our issue today is how much of the King James Version do we truly understand today? We're talking when Shakespeare was living on this. And recall that when he used words like generous, science, wit, and awful, he didn't mean what we mean by those words. It was the same words. They sounded more or less the same, but they had different meanings. And obviously that wasn't something quirky about him. This is true of any English from 400 years ago because language is always changing. And as we've learned in this podcast, that's not just because of different cultures coming together, but to a large extent, it's just because it's like clouds. And so yesterday's word generous back then meant noble. Today it means magnanimous. Yesterday's hey is today's huh. Yesterday's thou and thee is today's you and you. And so what does this mean in terms of how we approach the King James Version in today's real world with today's real people? Because, of course, back in the past, people were somehow not real. Only we are real because we're 
in the present. This is a rich question. And today we have right here in the studio, except actually he's in Washington State, Dr. Mark Ward, who blogs at ByFaithWeUnderstand.com. And he is the author of a book that's coming up very soon, January, I'm told, which is called Authorized the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. Dr. Ward, first, what is your official billing? As people ask you at a party, what do you do? I am a Logos Pro. I work for the company that makes the software that biblical studies professors and pastors would use to study the Bible. And that software is called Logos or Logos Bible Software. So I'm a Logos Pro. That's your job? It's a great job. Yes, I love it. (laughs) That sounds like a really interesting way to make a living. But on the KJV, you don't want to teach people how to read it, as you write in the introduction. You don't want to revise it. You don't want to chuck it. That's how you put it. Okay, so Mark, what do you want? Yeah, you, you nailed it. You got right to the center of the issue. I want people to relativize it to the standard that I set up in the book. I am a Christian. I make a Christian argument from the Bible that Bibles ought to be translated into the vernacular. And when relativized to that standard, the King James falls not into disuse, but into a specific kind of use. It becomes a resource for Bible study, a way of looking at the history of English Bible translation, but ceases to become a standard for use in churches and for personal devotion, which is most of what the Bible is and should be used for. And so what led you to want to go beyond the KJV? I grew up using the King James, and I prided myself in my ability to understand it pride in the very worst sense, really. I was arrogant about it. I thought that anybody else who couldn't understand this verbiage just wasn't trying hard enough, just didn't have a tall enough thinking cap like I did. Like we're told to reach up for Shakespeare, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In fact, when I read your book, Words on the Move, I read it after I wrote this book, and I had to go back and revise portions of what I wrote because you so exactly expressed what I had felt. In fact, I had in my original draft of the book written that you know, we shouldn't update him because the point of Shakespeare is eating your cultural vegetables. But after reading your book, I realized, no, I really don't think that. I think Shakespeare would have wanted to be understood. And if we could keep, as you said, the poetry, density, and elevation of Shakespeare, but give like a 10% translation, as you and others have recommended, Mm -hmm. then we can actually understand it. And I tend to think that's what Shakespeare would want. I'm certain That's what the King James translators would have wanted in 1611 when they published the King James, and I believe it's what God wants. So my interest is making sure people understand the Bible, and over the years I began to realize how much of the King James I had been reading right over and not realizing I was misunderstanding. So just as with the Shakespeare point, I make it and regularly get mail from people saying that I should not be a professor because I'm saying that Shakespeare ought to be adjusted. I'm sure that there are people who sit next to you in church, people who you counsel, very intelligent, passionate, concerned people who would tell you that you're out of your mind, that they understand the KJV quite fine. If it took a little effort, well, then everybody needs to put a little effort into it because life is supposed to be about effort. We are not amoebae. And so what leads you to think of this as something that's so urgent? Because your book is a passionate one. You're making a lawyerly argument, but I can feel the sweat and the viscera behind it. Was there a particular spark, given that you grew up thinking that you understood the text? Yes, actually, many sparks. 
And the most important one and the most visceral one probably has to be my own understanding how many times I've missed things and then checked with others and realized they didn't even realize they were missing it. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. One thinks one knows what that means, but you write about how you found out that one might not. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I was a counselor at a Christian camp, beautiful place in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina. And we have this memory verse list that all the kids were supposed to memorize from. And every counselor starts with the shortest verse, which happened to be Psalm 37, 8. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil is the last part of the verse. The first part is cease from anger and forsake wrath. And I could understand cease from anger and forsake wrath, but I just couldn't piece it together. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. I sort of got a general gist, like, don't worry, don't do (laughs) evil, but I couldn't connect those two ideas. Doesn't make sense in modern English, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I taught it dutifully, and then I started checking around. Does anybody understand this? And I couldn't find a single person that did, and in all these years, that was 20 years ago, I've not been able to find a single person who was able to persuade me that they understood what that meant in English. And actually, I've asked people who have some expertise in the Shakespearean era of English, and they weren't able to convince me. We're dealing with a translation here, and that means that sometimes we get what scholars will sometimes call Greeklish in the New Testament and Hebrewlish in the Old Testament, where it's actually maybe not English really that we're dealing with. It's a little hack that they put right. together, and they hope no one without us. Right. That does happen in any translation. There are difficulties, especially in the Old Testament. This may be one. I'm still hoping maybe a listener out there will be able to tell me what does Psalm 37 8 mean? Oh, 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 we are going to find out over the next two weeks. I can guarantee you we're going to get an avalanche of interpretation. Great. Let me ask you about another one because this one really, I found this poignant. Abstain from all appearance of evil because. Frankly, when you read that, you think that you're getting something relatively subtle, something relatively modern and psychological, you know, nothing that seems evil, even if it isn't. You feel kind of profound. But I'm disappointed now because it turns out that it doesn't mean that at all. Do we have any idea what they meant in that translation, abstain from all appearance of evil? Yes. You know, it's not as if the words of God are being hidden by the King James and therefore not accessible to others. You go to any bookstore in the country, and I'm presuming in other English-speaking countries around the world, and you can easily find other translations of the Bible that are made more recently that use our English, and of course, they're all over the Internet. So nobody's stuck unless they just don't realize or maybe perhaps refuse to use other translations. But other translations will take a verse like that and say something like, avoid every instance of evil. Hmm. And in this case, I think that's exactly what the King James translators meant. Oftentimes, I found in looking up these words in the OED that they could have had the sense back then that they do today, but the King James translators also had available to them another sense that we don't have anymore. And that creates some of this confusion. I think that's what's going on in this instance. It's so hard with appearance because we naturally think of or something having to do with a misrepresentation or some sort of surface, but it doesn't have to mean that. That's a metaphorical extension. Appearance could just mean something appearing as in instantiating itself, it being right there. And so we have to put ourselves in the mind of somebody who isn't experiencing the word as it has randomly evolved since then. And yeah, that's subtle, but we can be pretty sure that it didn't mean to them what it means to us. 
Yeah, I just looked it up in some of the modern translations, and they're going for abstain from every form or every kind of people, yeah. which is, you know, yeah. makes immediate sense to us today. Right. So, Mark, the idea here is that we might say to God that we want to see thee more clearly. Yes. To love thee more dearly. Yes. To follow thee more nearly. Yes. Well. Folks, sorry, but I've always just loved that song and I wanted to have a reason to put it in. Mark, is there a sociological aspect to all of this? So we're trying to get the Bible across to a great many people and not all of them are, say, young, nerdy you or compulsive linguist me. Does that have anything to do with this? Is there a democratic aspect to it? I'm hoping there is, because that's a lot of my Shakespeare argument. And thank you for your compliments about it. But I'm always thinking Shakespeare, not just for people who read The Atlantic, but Shakespeare for everybody. Yes, I think it's a Christian, it's a biblical principle. Jesus said in the Great Commission to disciple all the nations. And most of my time in pastoral ministry, because I've spent some time doing that, has been to people, you know, kind of a down and out, the wrong side of the tracks, as it were. And I loved it, but they were essentially functionally illiterate, and they were tripping up on these things. And what was interesting to me is they were humble enough to come tell me, whereas I feel like the more supposedly educated people that I usually rub shoulders with in evangelical churches, they were sort of embarrassed, as people apparently are, about their misunderstanding of Shakespeare, because how can anyone come out of a Shakespearean play and tell you, as they did, this really struck me, oh, I understood it just fine, and you <laughs> use this illustration in your book, and it so grabbed me because I realized I'm in precisely the same situation. It is excessively delicate to have to tell other people, no, you don't really understand yeah, this. Yeah. And here, I'm going to try to help you. And one of the ways I try to disarm them, basically, is something similar to what you did. I say, I don't understand it all. I spent a ton of time on this. I can read the Greek and the Hebrew. I read the King James through more than once, but I'm not getting it all. And every time I read, I notice other little things that I've missed. So I try to put the burden back on myself. But yes, I want the Bible to be accessible to as many people as possible. And it says in the beginning, there's that prologue where it says, talk about words changing their meaning, vulgar. Vulgar back then didn't have the note of contempt, or at least not always that it does now. They were just talking about what we might call class or educational level. We desire that it, it being this translation to come, may be understood even of the very vulgar. And your point is that because the language has changed so much, that people who don't have the benefit of education and being surrounded by books as they grow up have increasingly little access to that language, right? Exactly. The premier enduring illustration for this was given by the first man to give his life for English Bible translation, William Tyndall, mm. who was a reformer around the time of Luther, was influenced by Martin Luther, which we're celebrating this year, 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And he told a Church of England cleric, if God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. Hmm. And that's a very almost populist, democratic, individualist feel, and it should resonate with any American in a way, but it's also distinctly Christian and biblical. You know, God's gospel is for everybody. Mm -hmm. And if we encase it, encrust it in a language 
that makes it inaccessible, that's a big, big problem. And I'm trying to graciously, gently, but you're right, passionately and with sweat, persuade (laughs) others to take another look at this because there are plenty of people who just see no reason for a change and feel it as an insult. And I understand. I totally understand because I used to be that way about Shakespeare until I read John McWhorter. (laughs) I feel as an insult that I would suggest that we need to update the language. Of course, there are many, many other people that don't feel that way. We've got great sales in the modern translations, but we've got a lot of holdouts out there. And I love them. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And I'm trying to take them by the shoulders and gently say to them, (laughs) you've got to look at the false friends here in the King James, the words that you think you know but you, you're not really seeing what's going on. It's not only that you don't know what you're missing, you can't know what you're missing unless you're some kind of English specialist. Now, let me do devil's advocate because arguments like these are always valid. I'm sure that somebody might just say to you something like, well, I want you to know it's not really that much of a problem. You're not going to get everything. and Some of it is just poetry. <laughs> what do you do with that guy? The person who tells you this is not that big a deal. Thankfully, I don't have to appeal merely to cultural values, as you kind of do with Shakespeare, because these are Christians who are talking to me. I can Mm -hmm. appeal to the Bible. And so in my book, I make an argument. There's a great passage, 1 Corinthians 14. Paul writes this letter to these new Christians in this church at Corinth in Greece, and he makes an explicit tie between intelligibility and edification. If you're going to build people up, they have to understand. And my answer to them has been, in the past, a little more general, like, no, you just don't know how much you're missing. But I decided to get specific in this book and really dig in to try to prove that they don't know what they're missing. So I'd like to think that somebody like that, if I can actually get them to sit down and read the book, would look at all these examples I give, you know, something around 50. I I can't give an exhaustive amount. But folks, it is 50, and they're very convincing. Yeah, go ahead. I hope they'd say, oh, boy, I... I didn't realize I was missing a single one of those. That's my expectation. Nobody I've talked to except other extremely nerdy friends realizes there's only one English dictionary in which you can reliably look up words and find out what they meant in 1611. That's the Oxford English Dictionary, which is massive and expensive and not usually accessible to people. It's a a specialized skill set even just to use that dictionary. That's That's a good point. Do one more. What about thou and thee? We're going to lose thou and thee. Are people reading thou and thee correctly in any case? I spent some time on this because I have studied other languages, not nearly as many as you, but I've got reasonable fluency in Spanish. And of course, one of the major purposes for getting kids to learn other languages in America is helping them see their own with greater clarity. And one of the ways that's done is that new languages give new categories like the formal and informal second-person pronoun. That's just not available to us in English anymore, but it was back in the 16th century, leading into the time of the King James. Mm -hmm. And thou and thee sound elevated and religious to us. Mm -hmm. Even the Quran, contemporary translations of it, and the Book of Mormon, which was written in the 19th century, use thee and thou. Why did they do that? You know, these forms got baptized into being religious-sounding terminology. Mm -hmm. But originally, thee and thou were not formal modes of address, but informal modes of address. What's so ironic about this is that what everybody says when they defend the use of the King James is that, oh, you can get used to the these and thous very quickly. And on a certain level, they're right. But we're not perceiving what the original hearers would have perceived, this 
formal versus informal mode of address. And I'll mm-hmm. point out that that was eroding by the time of the King James. Definitely. But the King James was a revision of a 1568 Bishop's Bible, and for them to take out all of these and thous and put in yous, mm-hmm. which they could have done, mm-hmm. would have meant something like 20,000 changes. And mm-hmm. I posit, with no other evidence than human nature, that maybe they just didn't want to go to all the trouble. <laughs> this, of course, is an opportunity to play something for you, which I just love. This is You can't see it, unfortunately. This is 1934, and it's in blazing, glorious Technicolor. And because it was a 20-minute short, it wasn't stripped on television. It was rarely ever seen until about 10 years ago. And so it's as beautiful Technicolor as if you were watching Inception or The Gangs of New York. It's just, you can see life in 1934. But it also has three cute little songs. And this is one where you get to listen to somebody using thou and thee in a cute way that kind of splits the difference between a mythical past and the present, if you think of 1934 as the present, which I sometimes do, which is a problem that I need to work through in therapy, except I'm not having any. This is a little bit of the dialogue that runs into it. I wonder where Sir Lancelot is. Thou shouldst know us. I? Yea, I know all about thine affair with Lancelot. When Sir Will Rogers was here, <laughs> he told me. Pay no attention to that, Rogers. He only knoweth what he readeth in the paper. And then here is the song. I recommend that you find this online because the singer is an adorable, small-sized, non-male person named Maxine Doyle. She didn't live that long. But if you listen to her accent, if you kind of rewind and listen to her again, you can hear that even though this was done in California and she's supposed to be, I guess, somewhere in the British Isles, that this person clearly grew up somewhere probably on the very west side of Manhattan. Anyway, she is as cute as a cartoon character, and she's online, and you can watch her. In old King Arthur's reign, the girls were not what you'd call hot, but they got there just the same. You'd think each dashing sway in cold of mail would surely fail, but he got there just the same. Each night they float on a moonlit boat while they talked of this and that. And when he'd toot on his little loot, you could hear her say, don't ever do that. They never were profane with these and thousand courtly vows, but they got there just the same. I so wish that I could quote C.S. Lewis here and have it be from my own armchair, but it's actually in your book, and it's a very useful quote. You have him mentioning the only kind of sanctity which scripture can lose by being modernized is an accidental kind which it never had for its writers or its earliest readers. That is absolutely perfect, and I think that the thou issue is an example of that. Mark, here's a, a question. Given that you're saying that the KGV ought not be central to how one is given these teachings, and I hope that's a fair way of putting it, is there a translation that's your favorite? My answer is all the good ones. Many great names in the history of Christian theology have said the same thing I'm saying, which is that because God hasn't anointed one translation as the best in any given language, It is not just useful and helpful, but very healthy to use multiple translations. Anybody who's translated anything of any length, and I have, I've spoken and preached in Spanish and worked from Greek and Hebrew and done a little bit in other languages, they know that there are legitimate, usefully different ways of translating 
the same text, not radically different, but usefully different. So certain metaphors, like in Amos, there's kind of a famous metaphor where God says to the people, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, which is mm. a way, a picturesque way of saying, I made you hungry. I didn't give you anything to eat. <laughs> teeth didn't get messed up. A translator might say, my audience is functionally illiterate people who are just not going to get this. And I'm going to smooth out this metaphor and say, I made you hungry. Well, we've got translations that characteristically do that. Mm-hmm. The New Living Translation is one of them. I think that's very useful. I used that in ministry to people who really couldn't read very well, and it was awesome. They loved it. We loved using this translation. Mm -hmm. The New International Reader's Version, made for children, similar. But then you've got more centrist translations, and then you've got more literal translations. We've got an embarrassment of riches, so there is no best one. I tell people, look for what is useful given your needs at the moment. And we're not talking about making God say what you want Him to say. We're talking about What level of detail do you want to go to without the soft bigotry of low expectations on the one hand (laughs) and without demanding of people that they learn to be in Hebrew on the other? Which would be a stretch. Exactly. The idea that the word of God should be permitted to calcify slowly into a language normal people can't read is one of the reasons we had a Protestant Reformation. Is that you or are you quoting somebody else with that gorgeous passage? That was me. That's yeah, good. this year, 2017, really filled me with the uh, fire <laughs> in my belly because I, I saw the sacrifices that my forefathers made to give the Bible to people in their own languages. It was very controversial and not universally thought a good idea for society, for people to have God's words in their own tongue. You know, what might they do with it? And sure enough, they've done a lot of bad things with it. You go on the internet, you can see a lot of dumb interpretations of the Bible. (laughs) But I'd rather have that problem than the problem of nobody having access to it or it being stuck in this liturgical language that only certain specialists are even permitted to take a look at. I really get this, Mark. And you know, folks, If the Bible plays a significant part in your life, and it actually, it doesn't in mine, but if it does in yours, I recommend this book. The publisher did not foist it on me. This is a personal testimonial, as I would put it across for other things that I genuinely believe in, such as peach-flavored Jell-O. I highly recommend it, not cherry. Mitchum deodorant. It outdoes anything. I have given it as presents. I would not mix the two together, but this is really a very important book. And you know what else? It's short. Too many authors these days, and that includes me, write their books way too long for this highly distracted age. You could read this book while making dinner or while sitting through an episode of The Crown. This book is delightfully readable, and it will make a case for you. Highly recommended book about the Bible. Mark, thank you for sharing this with me today. You are a very articulate advocate for what I think of as a very useful and very effective piece of work. Well, no praise could give me more delight because I owe such a great debt to you. I just absolutely love your work. Thank you so much for having me on my favorite podcast, one of the very (laughs) few that I actually subscribe to. Thank you so much, Mark. That's quite unexpected. And best of luck with this book. Thank you so much. By the way, folks, I do get letters, and I wanted to mention a couple of things. From Elliot McQuarrie, I hear that that Broadway song that I don't like called Step to the Rear that I played last time is actually used by the University of South Carolina Gamecocks as a sports song. This is played on fields 
here is that Broadway song used in a modern context played by a band with people watching people play sports ball with just a little bit of it. And apparently the stadium cheer is actually go Cox. <laughs> go figure. In any case, on the cranberries, folks, cranberry morpheme. I'm so glad that now more people than before know what that is. But I think that I did not get across exactly what I meant by it. Uh, morpheme is a cranberry morpheme, not if nobody has any idea where the morphine came from, because usually you can figure something out. It's just that whether or not that morphine exists in the English that we know. And so, for example, inept, many people have pointed out that there is the word apt and that ept seems related to apt. And yeah, apt and ept are related way back in Latin. But the persnickety point about cranberry morphemes is that we don't say ept now. Or, for example, twilight. I've gotten so many beautiful mails about where twilight comes from and how you have this morpheme that means two and it's in between and betwixt and between. That is definitely the case. And so the etymologist knows where the twi came from. But of course, we don't, especially if we're naive. And I actually specifically remember when I learned the word twilight, I was, I believe, five years old. And I was in the first house that I remember on 7024 Marion Lane in Philadelphia. And it was twilight. And we were looking out the window. The house was so perfect. And we were looking at the dining room window. There was an oak tree on the right and a maple tree on the left. And it was twilight. And the sky was that color. And my mother said, oh, look, it's twilight. And I had never heard that word. And it's a pretty time of day. It's still my favorite time of day. And I looked at the sky and it was like, twilight. And you like that word because the two pieces rhyme, twilight. And there it is. And I remember even what song my father had on the hi-fi at the time. It was George Harrison. And it was My Sweet Lord, which actually ties in beautifully with the topic for today. My sweet Lord. Mm, my Lord. Mm, my Lord. Thou reachest us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To hearken to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. The editor of this episode was, as always, Mike Wolo. And speaking unto thee, as ever, is John McWhorter. El Gobfest en Español is Slate's first Spanish-language podcast. Led by award-winning Mexican journalist, broadcaster, and writer Leon Krause, the host discussed the news of the week in a no-holds-barred lucha libre. Other panelists include Fernando Pizarro, Univision's Washington correspondent Ariel Mutsatsis, Washington correspondent for Noticieros Televisa, Univision's White House correspondent Janet Rodriguez, and Spanish congressional correspondent Dory Toribio. They focus on U.S. politics and current events, but you'll also hear lots of international news as well as popular culture and, of course, football.
every week there's a newsmaking guest. Recent episodes feature journalist Jorge Ramos and Maria Elena Salinas, Congressman Luis Gutierrez, and Senator Tim Kaine, whose Spanish is wonderfully fluent. And for Slate Plus listeners, there's an English language segment so that non-Spanish speakers can hear at least some of the panelists' thoughts. Check out El Godfest en Español every Thursday morning.